together. Um, go ahead and open up your copy of God's Word, whether that's on your phone or in your actual Bible uh, book, to John chapter 7. That's where we'll be this morning, John chapter 7. As you're turning there, let's remember where we're at in our study of John's Gospel. Over the last several weeks, we've witnessed Jesus miraculously feeding massive crowds, walking on water, calming raging seas. Uh, and then last week, Jesus gave us the difficult mess. Uh, sorry, Jesus gave the difficult message to his disciples that in order to obtain eternal life, they'd have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. These hard words they exposed the unbelief in the hearts of many of his disciples, and they eventually chose many of them to to turn away from following him. And then we come to our text today. Uh, Jesus is going to continue to expose unbelief, uh, but this time in the hearts of both his biological brothers and in the Jewish leaders and crowds that he's speaking to. So uh, let's go ahead and stand. I know we've been sitting, but let's go ahead and stand just to give respect to God's word. We don't have to do this, um, but it is a way that choose to respect God's word and to make our minds pay attention to it a little bit differently because it is a different book than any other book that we ever read. Uh, So we're going to read verse 1 through 24. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going to go up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Let's pray. Oh Lord, as we consider your word this morning. Spirit of God, we ask you, we, we beg of you, Spirit of God, do what you, uh, what you always do with the preaching of your word. Uh, do what you delight to do, which is to help your people know Christ better through the preaching of his word. So Lord, would you do that in our midst, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, have you ever thought something was one thing only to find out later, or, or maybe just a half, and sec, half a second too late, that it was another thing entirely. Trip Lee, who's a famous rapper, pastor, and author, which is quite the combo of vocational credentials, <laughs> uh, he, he tells the story in the foreword of a book uh, called Who is Jesus by Greg Gilbert. And, and Trip tells this story about being at a party with his best friend in high school. And he says, we had just arrived when we saw our friend Nicole standing in the corner having a good time. 
We had spent time with Nicole and her pregnant friend the day before. So we decided to walk over and greet them. My best friend said hey to Nicole and then reached out and rubbed her friend's belly with a kind smile and asked, how's the baby? The only problem was that this was a different friend and she wasn't the least bit pregnant. (laughs) Now the takeaway for all of us guys in the room, unless it's your own wife, like don't touch another woman's belly. And the takeaway takeaway for the rest of us in the room is that that the how's the baby stories, they just never end well. So if a pregnant mom wants to tell you how the baby in her pregnant belly is doing, let her be the one to initiate that. Save yourself and all the not pregnant women out there the embarrassment and just just don't do that, okay? Can we all agree to that? Good. All right, but uh, we probably can each remember a time where our initial assessment of something was slightly or perhaps even significantly off. And that's exactly what's happening here in our text this morning. But before we look at our text, let's remind ourselves again of what John, the author of this gospel, uh, what what he's told us about the purpose of this gospel is. I think we've reminded ourselves about it just about every sermon we've preached in this study so far. At this point, you might even be able to recite it with me. And actually, if you can, let's, let's just do that. 31, it says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's John's overarching purpose of the book. That's what he's trying to accomplish for his readers. That's what he's trying to accomplish in us. And so chapter by chapter, it's as if he's taken us by the hand, leading us through the stories of Jesus and his disciples to give us glimpses of the things that Jesus is doing, the places Jesus is going, the messages Jesus is proclaiming, the people Jesus is healing and confronting and saving so that through it all, Uh, John, he's trying to help us to remember. He's urging us. He's compelling us. Believe that Jesus is the Christ. Reason after reason, example after example, contrast after contrast, miracle after miracle, claim after claim, all of this to come to the right conclusion about Jesus, to know him rightly. Or, said another way, as we'll see in our text this morning, John wants us to make the right judgment about Jesus. It's right there at the end of verse, uh, right there at the end of our section in verse 24. Look at it there again with me. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Jesus says there's, there's one way one should judge and there's one way, or there's a way one should judge and there's a way one shouldn't judge. Now, before we move any further than that, let's just remember, like Jesus isn't talking here about being judgmental. So that's a different thing. Uh, you know, we typically hear the word judge, and that's kind of how it's used these days. Don't judge me. You're so judgmental. Who made you judge? Uh, you know, I recently heard in Matthew uh, that Matthew 7, verse 1, is now the second most popular verse in the Bible. Anybody know what that is? Matthew 7. <laughs> yep, that's it. Judge not, lest you be judged. Second most popular verse now in the Bible, right after John 3.16. Uh, so, but in that context, in Matthew, the kind of judgment that Jesus has in mind is the kind of hypercritical judgment that is willing to completely ignore the log-sized sins in one's own eye while focusing on the speck-sized sin in others' eyes. But that's not the kind of judgment that Jesus has in mind here in our text. This kind of judgment is the kind that seeks to make the right call, that assesses the situation correctly, that comes to the right conclusion. And that's exactly what Jesus demands of everyone who comes into contact with him. That they think rightly about him. That they come to to the terms with who he is and what he's come to do. That they repent of their sins and believe in his name. But no one ever comes to that conclusion by just taking a quick glance at him. Things are not always what they appear. Which is why we can't make right judgments solely on the way that we quickly perceive things to be. And this is also true of Jesus. And in our text this morning, both Jesus, uh, both Jesus' brothers and the Jewish leaders that Jesus is going to encounter, they, they think they know Jesus. That's what John's trying to help us see. They think they have him figured out. But as John will show us, they don't really know Jesus at all. John begins this, uh, this section of verses in chapter 7, verse 1. And he begins with the words, After this... 
And whenever we see some words like that after this, that should make us ask the, uh, the question, after what? Like, what, what are we talking about? Let's get some bearings. Well, if we remember from last week, near the end of chapter 6, Jesus and his disciples had suddenly taken somewhat of a decline in popularity. It isn't all that surprising with all the talk about eating flesh and drinking blood. I mean, that had to be some hard stuff to swallow, pun intended. John concludes chapter 6 by telling us that and considering these hard sayings, many of Jesus' so-called disciples ended up turning away from him, choosing not to follow him any longer. Remember that? They had taken a glance at the signs Jesus had done and were impressed with what appeared to them to be a man with some really cool tricks up his tunic, but their shallow commitment to Jesus was based on what he might be able to do for them. They had only thought of him as a great miracle worker who would give them free food, but Jesus was not their private vending machine. They had judged him by what they thought they saw, but when they realized Jesus was calling them to more than get it in line at the buffet line, they didn't stick around. And that might have left some of the remaining disciples, I would imagine, feeling somewhat discouraged. Or maybe the moment, maybe it discouraged them the moment Jesus told them that one of them was actually a devil. I'm sure that had a real galvanizing effect on the group. <laughs> um, or maybe it was uh, what we see here in verse 1, uh, that, that they, were, they were enemies of the state. John says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. Look at verse 1. He would not go about in Judea, so he's okay to go around in Galilee, but he doesn't go in Judea. Why? The Jews were seeking to kill him. Oh, yeah, that's right. Thanks, John. We almost forgot about that. The Jewish leaders are still on the lookout for Jesus. And they're not looking for a photo op and a chance to get their turbans autographed. They're still upset with him about healing that lame man on the Sabbath day. And we'll talk about that more later in the message. But that was from chapter 5. So but before we get ahead of ourselves, John, John in verse 2, let's keep going. Verse 2, it says, Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. And that's a significant piece of chronological info that we don't want to skip over. If you remember, the, the feeding of the 5,000 from chapter 6 had taken place around the time of the Passover, which according to the annual Jewish festival calendar would, would have taken place about six months earlier than what was known here as the Feast of Booth. So we had the Passover six months later from the end of chapter 6. We're here now. Uh, Feast of Booths is at hand. Uh, it's also called the Feast of Tabernacles. This was a Jewish festival that would have com commemorated the time in Israel's history when they had wandered through the wilderness living in tents. So they would often erect tents all throughout the city. It would also have been a feast celebrating the Lord's past provisions and also anticipating the coming day when God would finally bring in the blessings of his promised kingdom. So lots of sim symbolism here in this feast. It was one of the most anticipated festivals of the entire Jewish year with thousands of people converging all at once on the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus' brothers would have definitely been aware of this. They would have known. Now, Jesus' brothers, you remember those guys? We were briefly introduced to them back in chapter 2. These are Jesus' biological siblings. One of those siblings was named James. And we know James. James was the guy who would later become one of the apostolic leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And he'd go on to write one of the letters of the New Testament by his own name, James. So, but these are Jesus' little brothers. And as you might expect from little brothers, they have some fun with their big brother. Urging him to take his signs and wonders spectacle on the road. Look at verse 3. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. Big brother, no one works in secret if he really wants to be known openly. If you do these things, yeah, we've seen them, but you know, if, you, if you claim to do this stuff, show yourself to the world, they tell him. They're saying, come on, Jesus. Did you see what you did back there in Capernaum? All that wine and food and walking on the waves. It was incredible. What are we all doing walling around here in the Galilean shadows? We don't need to be afraid of those Jews. Have we forgotten the fact that you just told a storm to chill out and it listened to you? Get up, man. If you want everyone to know you're the savior of the world, you got to get to that feast. That's the biggest stage there is. Everyone who's anyone will be there. You'll no doubt see some of your disciples there. It's time to show everyone who you really are. To really make a name for yourself. This is your chance, Jesus. Come on, let's go dazzle those crowds. So it would seem, at least on the surface, and through what appears to be some lighthearted mockery, that Jesus' brothers, they really do believe in their big brother. But John, as he has done several times throughout this letter, this book, he helps us to understand what's really going on by giving us a glimpse beneath the surface, into the very hearts of Jesus' brothers. Look at verse 5. It's a pretty unexpected revelation. 
Verse 5 says, for not even his brothers believed in him. Wait, wait a minute, John. What do you mean they don't believe in him? Of course they believed in him. They, they watched him grow up. They knew he was, how sinless he was. I mean, they, it probably irritated the mess out of them to, to see how, how he never disobeyed mom and dad. And they saw the signs he was doing. They had witnessed the people Jesus had healed and the crowds he had gathered. If anyone would have believed in him, it had to have been his own flesh and blood, right? Not even brothers, John tells us. So it would seem that there's a way to appear to believe without actually believing. To believe in a way that isn't actually committed. Which, if you think about it, can't really even be called belief at all. (laughs) To believe in something means, by its very definition, to put your trust into it. To give yourself fully over to it. Believing is being all in. And Jesus' brothers, as John is helping us see, were not all in. They had taken a quick glance at Jesus and had drawn the wrong conclusions about him. He hadn't come to put on a miracle show for everyone. He hadn't come to be the next biggest circus act. He had no intention of overthrowing the Roman Empire in the way that they thought. These were assumptions that they had made about him. These were all things that they wanted Jesus to do for them. But Jesus wasn't fooled by the surface level loyalty. Jesus saw right through their self-centered intentions. He knew that they had missed the point of his entire earthly ministry. Because if they had really understood the Messiah's uh, mission, they would not have suggested what they were suggesting. What his brothers were suggesting for Jesus to do was actually insane. They wanted him to arrogantly waltz right into the middle of the biggest festival in all of Judea, wearing the giant kill me target on his back. It would have made for a sure arrest and possible death. So Jesus refuses. But look at verse 6. Why does he refuse? Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it, that its works are evil. So you go up to the feast. I'm not going to go up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. In other words, Jesus is saying, guys, you, you just, you don't get it, do you? All, all you can think about is yourselves. You just do whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want to do it. You don't live your life with any sense of God's purpose. Me, that's all I care about. It's all I've ever cared about. My entire purpose on this planet is to expose evil and call sinners to repentance. You know, people don't really like that. In case you haven't been paying attention, they don't really want to hear from me. In fact, the world hates me. It doesn't hate you. Why would it hate you? You look and act just like it. You think like it. There's nothing that distinguishes you from it. Just like the world, you don't believe in me or my purpose. So you guys go ahead. You go on up to the feast. It's not my time to go. I'll go when it is my time. Studying this interaction between Jesus and his brothers, it, it stung me this week. Because... It makes me have to ask some pretty probing questions of my own allegiance to Jesus. Jesus says, if you believe in me, the world will hate you. I don't know about you, but I could spend a lot of my energy each day trying to get the world to love me. Trying to live my life in a way that doesn't cause too much conflict. That doesn't ruffle anyone's feathers. That keeps my Christianity to myself. Jesus confronts me. And confronts us in this passage. He says, that's not what belief in me looks like. If you believe in me, the world will see that you believe in me. And the world will hate that you believe in me. I think that's something that most of us here in Midland, Texas, will likely not experience very often. One particular reason that this text stung me this week is that I'm going to Nepal on Tuesday. My entire life... I have lived and gone out to eat and attended school and sat in coffee shops and walked around in stores and even gathered in religious facilities without giving a whole lot of thought to what the people around me might think of me. Granted, I try to stay alert to possible opportunities that the Lord might give for me to share his gospel with those I encounter, but, but even then, I'm doing so in what is, or at least what has been a historically Christian culture, though it's, it's changing rapidly for us. Nepal is not that. 
I haven't been there yet, <laughs> but Nepal, I'm told by Alan and by Billy, uh, that it's not like that. It's a, it's a Hindu culture. We just saw uh, photos and, and videos of that. So for the first time in my life, I'm going to be stepping into an utterly different context than I've ever been in before. Ra- racially different, culturally different, religiously different, a completely foreign place where many, if not most, who live there are opposed to my Christian faith because of the threat that Christianity poses to them and to their societal system. Not just their religious preference or their individualism like we encounter here in the state, but down to the very idea of what it means to be Nepali. And that's what Jesus faced in Judea. That's what he was facing up against the Jewish system. People hated him. They hated everything he stood for. And I think that this passage wants us to ask that question about ourselves. What about us? Do we live a life that the world hates or one that the world loves? Does your life look any different than the life of those who are of the world? Do you seek the same applause? Do you grab for peace from the same securities? Devour the same entertainment? Worship the same idols of self and sex and convenience? Don't we all in one way or another? As a professing believer in the name of Jesus Christ, what our lives and lifestyle testify, I mean, what they really testify should be our Christian faith. What actually differentiates us from those we live among who do not profess Christ are our family members. I'm sorry, I asked that question incorrectly. What, what actually differentiates us from those we live among who do not profess Christ? Those who are our family members, those who are our friends, our classmates, our coworkers, our clients, the people who wait at us wait on us at our tables, the people who work on our houses, the people who groom our pets, what actually differentiates us from them? Do we just blend in with the world? Or is there anything that marks us as followers of Christ? Anything a non-believer might see that would seem unusual or odd or even offensive? Some Christians, they offend around just for the sake of being offensive. That's not what I'm talking about. Jesus testifies the world's evil works, yes, but he does that with a heavy spirit, not a haughty one. Seeing the world's sinfulness breaks the Savior's heart. The presence of evil fills him with righteous anger. It motivates him to speak out in truth, to show love and care for the lost, and ultimately, It compelled him to give his very life for them on the cross. Even as he hung dying there on the cross, he cried out, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. That's undeserved compassion. And and if I could just speak for a second to anyone here who is not a Christian. First off, we're really glad you're here. Thank you for coming to be with us today. You know, I don't know if this is your first time or maybe you've been attending for a while. Thank you for, for gathering with us. Thank you for listening to God's word. What you're doing is, is one of the most important things you can be doing during this hour of your life. And, and kiddos, we have kiddos in here. And maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you're not professed to be Christ. Thank you for being here for coming with your mom and dad, for listening to God's word. Thank you for being here. We would love to get a chance to talk with any of you as, as your leaders, as your pastors. Um, we'd love to answer any questions that you might have about our church and about our faith in Christ. And that would be such a joy and an honor to us to do. But we, we want you to know that we're a room filled with people who have received that undeserved compassion. We are those who know that we have no right to boast about anything we've been given. Jesus Christ, who claimed to be the Son of God and to have ultimate authority over everything in this world, because of the love with which he loved us, he chose to become our Savior. He died in our place to deliver us from the destiny that awaited us in hell, where we would have been separated from him, experiencing his eternal wrath, just and deserved forever. And and that's not our story anymore. 
So we have no reason to look down our noses at anyone who's in the position that we once found ourselves in because we know the only reason we are no longer in that position is because Jesus chose to have compassion on us and to come and rescue us and redeem us. And, and non-Christian, he, he offers that same invitation to you this morning. And if you'd want to talk to somebody about that, there'll be some time at the end of the service to come up and to pray. Come grab one of our pastors, one of our prayer team members. Grab somebody you're sitting next to. Uh, They'd love to share with you just what Jesus has done for them and and to pray with you. But we need to keep moving along. So I hope that was clear. Um, Verse 9, let's look at verse 9. It says this, After saying this, saying that he wasn't going to go up to the feast, he, Jesus, remained in Galilee the text tells us. Then verse 10, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Okay, that should make us all be like, what just happened here? Um, Did did we read that correctly? Jesus tells his brothers in verse 8 that he would not go to the feast. Then verse 9, after he says this, he stays in Galilee. But then verse 10, unless I'm reading this wrong, it seems like he goes up to the feast anyway. So Did Jesus just lie? No, Jesus didn't lie. When Jesus says he wouldn't go to the feast, he means that he wouldn't go up when and how these brothers were telling him to. We know that because, number one, Jesus doesn't lie, so we know that. Uh, So don't let that trip you up. But as we'll see in a second, Jesus had every intention of going to the feast. Just not the way his brothers wanted him to. And that's the point that John's making here. Um... I don't know, my default fleshly inclination is to do things on my own time, according to what makes the most sense to me in the moment, or what's best for me right now, or what I think would be the most enjoyable or convenient or profitable for me. It's a selfish condition that I have. Maybe you have a similar condition. God operates, though, on an entirely different timetable than us, with entirely different priorities. God says in Isaiah 55, verse 8, for my thoughts... Are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And just in case you thought maybe there was only a slight degree of difference, uh, he adds in verse 9 For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So they're really different. The way God thinks about things are really different than us, which is really good to remember that. Um, Jesus' brothers, we just saw, they wanted him to make a grand entrance into this festival, right? But Jesus is like, I'm not doing that. I'll just kind of quietly slip in after the third or fourth day. They wanted him to arrive with fireworks and fanfare. But Jesus, he ends up just kind of casually making his way to the temple and starts teaching. And it's at this point that John shifts our attention away from Jesus and the brothers who we've seen, they badly misjudged the Messiah, seen him as an opportunity for their own flesh, their own selfish hopes and dreams of fame and popularity. And then he shifts our attention over to now a new, entirely different cast of characters uh, who themselves will misjudge the Messiah by seeing him as an opposition to their pomp and prestige. Look at verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. The Jews, who in verse 1 were seeking to kill him, we now see in verse 11, are still looking for him at the feast. And we can read into that, that they're still looking to to kill him. Uh, And so this isn't just a casual wondering if they'll catch a glimpse of Jesus. They're on the hunt. And everybody knows it which explains the muttering or the talking under their breath going on about him among the crowd. Jesus had begun to cause quite a stir. Word was getting around that this man was someone you wanted to see with your own eyes. He was a spectacle. People were intrigued by him. Some were enraged. Many were still likely indifferent. But no one dared, it's interesting to see, no one dared speak openly about him. The Jewish leaders had made it very clear to everyone that they were not happy with this Jesus guy and all that he stood for. These religious leaders are intent on finding Jesus, capturing him, and putting an end to all that he represents. But Jesus' time to surface finally does come. Look in verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Now, 
if we read these verses too quickly, we'll miss a lot of what is implied here and what the Jewish crowds would have been very aware of that was happening. So just the, the mere fact that Jesus stands up in the temple to preach, that would have been a bold and intentional statement he's making about his position and his authority. The rabbis are the guys that stand up in the temple and teach. The Jewish leaders, the religious guys, they're the ones that do that. And Jesus, having not been trained as a rabbi, he, he does the same thing that all the other guys do. And then let's not, um, let's not misunderstand verse 15 when it says that the Jews marveled at his teaching. That, that's not them paying Jesus a compliment. They're mad. They're hot. Uh, Edward Plink, in his commentary on this passage, gives us this insight. It says, in response to the teaching of Jesus, Jewish authorities ask a question that in a first century context is a forensic charge against Jesus, calling into question his state as a teacher and therefore the validity of his teaching. Does that make sense? The reaction of the Jews to Jesus' teaching expressed in the statement they were amazed is not to be interpreted as a positive thing. Clint goes on to say, to them, Jesus was an uneducated nobody who holds no formal elected office and has had no formal accredited training. His behavior to stand up and teach was a clear and present threat to the establishment and its traditions. Even the designation, look in, uh, in, is it in verse 15, yeah, this man is to be viewed as contemptuous. So the actual question they ask is entirely rhetorical. They're not looking for Jesus to answer. It's entirely rhetorical and with the communicative intent of demeaning Jesus and challenging his authority. That was really helpful by Edward Clint. Clink, sorry. Uh, so yeah, they're not happy with Jesus and the audacity that he shows in assuming the position of teacher in their synagogue. How dare he? How very dare you, my daughter says from Bluey. How very dare he? Uh, and they certainly didn't appreciate an answer to their rhetorical condescending question, but that's exactly what Jesus does. He answers it anyway. Look at verse 16. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. So I came across this. Kevin DeYoung, he uses this brilliant illustration. Uh, it's a little bit lengthy, but man, it's so good. So I'm just going to kind of paraphrase his illustration, but I'm just not taking credit for it. This is Kevin DeYoung. Um, but it's this illustration to help us to try to get an idea of what this would have felt like to these Jewish people. Uh, so kids, if you're a kid, can you stand up for a second? Can everybody stand up? I see Benji. All right, if you're a kid, I mean, everybody's a kid, so I don't mean that. If, if you're below the age of 11. Um, all right, so you know when your mom and dad tell you to go tell your brothers or your sisters to go do something like take out the trash or go clean up your room or hurry up and come here, what usually happens? What, what are they going to say, your brothers and sisters, when you go tell them? What, what are they going to say? They're just like, oh, thank you for giving us dad's message. We will obey his decree immediately. No, that's not what happens, right? No, what, what happens? You're not dad. You're not the boss of me. That's what they say, right? Well, what if you tried to come to them on your own authority? What if you said, hey, everybody, stop what you're doing immediately. My name is Ethan. And I declare that you come and clean my room right now. That probably is not going to go over too well, right? No. But do you see what's happening here? When you have to tell your brothers and sisters something from mom and dad, what, do they have to, what are you asking them to do? You're asking them to have faith that what you're saying is true. Because they, in that moment, they have to believe your words. Did dad really give you this message? Do we really need to get in the car right now? Do I really need to go outside and weed the garden? Do I really need to come set the table? Do I believe that you're a real messenger from my father? I mean, it happens in our families. It happens here with these Jewish leaders. They're asking, do we really need to believe that Jesus was sent from the Father? Jesus, what he's doing, he's challenging these guys' faith. But let, let's take it one step further. So kids, y'all still with me? I see everybody sat down. That's okay, you can sit down. But one step further, what if, what if this happened? Would, would you listen to your sibling if they came into your room, acting a little bit too big for his britches, telling you what to do? Imagine if your brother came to the room and says, not only do I have a message from my father, but I and my father are one. You'd be like, get out of my room, you liar, you're crazy, you're nuts. And, and that's like what's happening here. You can understand a little bit of the ways the Jews are feeling. Jesus doesn't appeal to this or that well-known rabbi. That's not what he's talking about. That would have made sense to them. Oh, yeah, I was trained by rabbi so-and-so. No, that's not what he does. They would have expected that. 
doesn't need to claim any rabbi. He doesn't need to claim the authority of man. His teaching is from God. And that's the highest authority there possibly is. That's what he is saying. What I am teaching, yeah, that's Yahweh's teaching. It's the same teaching. Same, same, same teaching. It's a bold statement, and that would have shocked the religious leaders. But Jesus isn't finished with his defense. He keeps going. Verse 17, he goes on to explain why, they're, why they are unable to discern whether his teaching is from God. Look at verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. So what is Jesus saying there? He's saying, if any of you are wondering whether or not what I'm saying is really from God, the sheer fact that you aren't sure proves that you're not from God. Because if you wanted to do God's will, you would know that what I'm teaching is from God. You see the logic there? Again, uh, Edward Klink, he, help, he gives us some helpful The issue is less the verifiability, whether or not we can verify, uh, the verifiability of the messenger, and more the veritas, it's a Latin word for verify, I think, <laughs> of the message. I'm using context clues. The truthfulness it proclaims. And represents. So it's not the, how, how verifiable is the messenger, but how verifiable is the message? Is it true? The Jews, I love this. This is clean. The Jews challenge the ability of Jesus to teach, but Jesus challenges the ability of the Jews to hear. <laughs> that's, what's, that's what he's doing right there. Bam, Jesus is having his way with the Jewish leaders. He's effortlessly exposing their unbelief and wrong assessment of him. No wonder a few late verses later in John, the officers that get sent by the Pharisees to go arrest Jesus, well, they don't. And then instead they come back and they confess, no one ever spoke this, uh, like this man. Uh, that's, that's the way that Jesus is. That's the kinds of things he does and says. And he still doesn't let up. Jesus ends this rebuttal to their challenge by offering this proof of his authenticity. Look at verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him, he's true. And in him, there's no falsehood. So Jesus is basically saying, I'm not in this for my glory, guys. And he alone would know just how true that statement really is. Think about that statement. Jesus saying, I'm not in this for my glory. Now, yes, there's a sense in which Jesus is in this for his glory. That's for another message. So I'm not saying that he's not really. But in this sense, Jesus is not trying to make a name for himself so he can wow all the Pharisees. No one else standing in the temple that day, they had no, no clue what Jesus was saying. But Jesus saying, I'm not in this for my glory, is a profound statement. And, and we, on this side of Calvary, we have an idea of what those words meant. We know of the agony that Jesus would endure on the cross, the suffering, the mockery. We know what it would mean for Jesus to say, not my will but yours, Father. We know the humiliation and the suffering and the shame and the defamation Jesus would have to face on account of our sin and the entire world's sins and even of the sins of these very Jewish leaders who he says it to. Jesus knows how difficult it will be to give himself willingly into their custody, to allow them to beat him and to spit in his face and to crown him with thorns. But that isn't even what will be most difficult for Jesus. He knows that he's not seeking his own glory because he knows how infinitely more difficult it will be to be utterly forsaken and abandoned by his father. The very one who he says is the glory that he seeks. So he tells him, guys, wouldn't someone speaking on his own authority really just be seeking to make his own name great? I'm not doing that. I'm not looking to make a name for myself like you guys do. I'm seeking the glory of my Father, and that should be proof positive for my authenticity as the Son of God. Jesus is trying to help them see who he really is, not who they think him to be. He wants them. This is amazing. He, he wants them. He wants these Pharisees, these Jewish people who are rejecting him. He wants them to come to right conclusions about him. He could annihilate them. And he wants them to do that. They should be bowing down in submission to his authority and lordship. But instead, they're squabbling over laws and trying to kill him. 
So Jesus kind of plays along in order to expose their intentions. Then he poses his own rhetorical question back at them. Look at verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? He's not really looking for them to say, yeah. He's, he's, he's affirming, like, we all know that, right? Moses gave us the law. Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Jesus says, you guys pride yourselves on keeping the laws, but you forgot the sixth commandment was written. Remember that? It says, don't murder anybody. And you guys are coming to try to murder me. You, you want to kill me. And the crowd answers, whoa, 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 you're crazy. You got a demon, Jesus. Nobody's seeking to kill you. What are you talking about? And Jesus reminds them of just how angry everybody has been with him after he healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda back in chapter 5. Turn there real quick and look at uh, verse 18. So chapter 5, verse 18. Remember what John told us about their intentions in this verse. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. So here it is. This is why. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And that's the whole argument that Jesus is going to dive into in verse 21 through 24. Jesus answered them, verse 21, I did one work and you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but that's another matter. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? We don't have time to like look at that in detail, but basically he's saying you're willing to perform surgery on an eight-day-old boy on the Sabbath. Like That's okay so that you can consecrate him to the Lord, a part of his body to the Lord. But why would you have any problem at all with me healing a whole man's body on the Sabbath so I could sustain and, and improve his life? Do you guys see your own faulty logic? That's what Jesus is trying to help them see. What is he doing here? Why is Jesus trying to do this? I think it's because they've been so focused on trying to stifle Jesus, to snuff him out. In their minds, they, they determined Jesus. They, they came thinking of Jesus because of that one little discrepancy that making a name for himself, a threat to their authority and to undermining the very laws and traditions that have become a part of their identity. But what they fail to see is they fail to see him as Lord and Savior, the one that's come to set them free from bondage to this very law that they're trying to protect. He's coming to abolish that. And the same was true about Jesus' brothers that we looked at earlier. They had been so focused on trying to promote Jesus to celebrity status, to gain a following for him and for them maybe, might pose a threat to the oppressive Roman rule, to win people with his miraculous signs, because in their minds that would give them the security and popularity that they craved. But what they failed to see is that Jesus' path to Jerusalem would be one of shame and humiliation where, where he, would, he would gain a following, but not through the same way they were seeing that. Not through fame and fortune, but through his death on a cross. The Jews were threatened by what Jesus might take from him, and the brothers were thrilled at what Jesus might give to them. So they had the same problem. John Piper said, uh, these are, uh, what we're seeing here are two different plants growing from the same root of unbelief. Both of them had missed the Messiah. And that's why Jesus concludes this passage with verse 24, which we read at the beginning. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Neither of these groups did what Jesus commanded them to do in this verse. They both judged by appearances instead of judging with right judgment. And I think John gives us this story at this point in his gospel account. Because remember, this isn't just an isolated story. John's been trying to help us see something all along. And he's going to continue to help us to see it. And he gives us this story at this point. Because in the coming pages, the heat's about to get turned way up on Jesus and his followers. There's going to be a lot of controversy coming. The lines are being drawn. Uh, and, and, and the polarizing force of Jesus' message, the message of this gospel, it's going to demand that every single person make a choice. The right choice is what Jesus is concerned about. The right choice about what you believe about the Messiah. And I think that's, that's what this passage asks us this morning. What do we believe about the Messiah? 
sobering question for each of us because each of us, myself included, I mean this, we, we are susceptible to the danger of incorrectly assessing Jesus. We're susceptible to that, guys, ladies. When we walk out of here, right now, maybe it's clear, when we walk out of here, we're susceptible. We're susceptible to the danger of incorrectly assessing Jesus for failing to make a proper judgment about him. To be tempted to hold on to ideas about him that aren't true, that aren't right, that are ill-informed, to paste on top, onto him our ideas of what we think he should be like. We're susceptible to that. Who is Jesus to you? What's your verdict on the God from Nazareth? Or is he just background noise of your relatively moral life? When's the last time you took a moment to consider him? I mean, really consider him. Not just a quick glance. I mean like a nice, long stare. To make sure you know him. I mean, I mean, really know him. That's what Jesus is wanting his brothers, the Pharisees, us. That's what he wants us to do. And that's what John is calling us to do. To know, to determine, to arrive at the correct conclusion, to judge for ourselves rightly that Jesus is the Christ. He is not Jesus the political activist. He's not Jesus the miracle worker or Jesus the good man like some of the crowd said or Jesus the one who leads people astray like the rest of the crowd said or Jesus the self-taught teacher. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Do we believe that? John wants us to know that a right and true and accurate belief in Jesus as the Son of God leads to a true and lasting and eternal life in his name. And by God's grace, don't, don't you want that? Don't you want to know Jesus so that you have life in his name? Don't you want to obey that promise to believe in him? Where, where is belief hard for you this morning? I don't know what's going on in life. But you're being challenged in some way, to some degree, in some situation, to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. As I'm looking around, I see some of you that I do know some of your stories, and, and I, can, I can see how, how life right now can feel like. It's really tough to believe that. It's really tough to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, like he says he is. It's really tough to believe that he's got authority to do all that he says he can do. It's really tough to believe that he's good, that he cares. It's really tough for me right now. Well, hear God's word encourage you this morning to look above, beyond your circumstances to Jesus. And by God's grace, as we continue to look to Christ, to seek to know him, to believe in his name, uh, that, that we will have ever-increasing surety that he is Christ, the Lord. Let's pray. Actually, before we pray, I'm sorry. Um, prayer team, folks. I forgot to check who that is. If you guys could come up, uh, band, if you guys could come up. So I'm, I'm going to pray for us. Um, there'll be some folks here. The band's going to lead us into a song. Uh, while we're singing that song, if you want to come and respond, um, maybe, maybe at the end of the message there, there was something that the Lord brought to your mind, a, a place that you need to maybe go back to him and say, Lord, I'm, I've not surrendered this to your lordship. Uh, I have not remembered to believe in your name. Lord, come, come, and, come and do some business with the Lord. Uh, come receive from him. Come let somebody pray for you. Um, you know, pastors are here as well. Uh, but let's pray and ask the Lord to, to let his word have its proper effect on our hearts. So yes, Lord, that's what we pray. Lord, we, we ask, um, well, Lord, we want to be submitted to your word. Uh, we, we want this word, not, not Eric's words, not Billy's words, not Alan's words, uh, not any man's words. We want your words. You know, we saw last week, where else can I go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Lord, and this, this morning, we got to hear your word preached to us. And what your word says, that 
is when it's preached, faith comes. That's what Jesus was trying to get these guys to do, to have faith in his name. Lord, so would you let your word have its effect on our hearts? Would you you let it uh, bolster faith in us? Lord, wherever someone might be uh, struggling with faith, maybe it's not faith in the sense of uh, I don't believe Jesus to be real or I don't believe that he died for my sins, but but maybe it's a faith that doesn't function like faith. Lord, and so I I just want to pray for anybody like that uh, who might be here and faith isn't functioning as faith. Remember we talked in the message, belief has to be belief by being all in. Well, faith has to be faith by being exercised or it's not faith. Lord, and so I just want to pray for anybody who might be in that season. Lord, who, who needed the reminder this morning, reigning that you are on your throne, that you are the Christ. And they need to come again fresh to you place their faith in your name and in your ability and in your love and your forgiveness. Lord, so we lift them up to you. Lord, I also pray for anyone who has not placed their faith in you in a saving way, in a way that is, is surrendered to you. Lord, and I pray that as, as the word was preached, Lord, maybe, maybe somebody heard that word and, and your word gave eternal life to them. Or, or, or at least made them curious about what it means to become a Christian, to, to surrender their life to the Lordship of Christ. And so we, we want to lift those folks up to you. Whatever age. Lord, thank you for the preaching of your word. Thank you for, uh, for being so us week after week to, to speak to us, to strengthen us, to convict us to motivate us to remember to live for you, Lord, we do. Lord, now as we sing, as we pray, uh, Lord, let us, let us respond. You know, at the end of um, Psalm 107 earlier, Alan led us in. Uh, it said, and the people are thankful. I, I don't, I'm paraphrasing that, but there was a responsiveness that, that people had to the truth that, was, uh, that, that you were their savior, that you were their, the one who would provide for them. They responded in a certain way. Lord, help us to respond now as we sing with faith. We're going to sing, uh, yet not I, which says, to this I hold. Lord, so we want to hold fast your name, Jesus Christ. We pray. Amen. Let's stand.